Well, good morning. It is really a pleasure to be with you. You're supposed to say that when you're invited to speak someplace, but I really mean it. It is uh, so good to be with you guys again. Uh, everybody's asked what it's like to be back, and the best thing I can think of to say is that it feels like uh, coming to Grandma's house, uh, which I mean in the most affectionate way possible. I'm not talking about funny smells or anything like that, <laughs> although... <laughs> I just mean that uh, every, everybody I look at is familiar, and I know how to get where I'm going, and uh, it is a pleasure to be with you, so thanks for having me. Um, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. I'll tell you as you're turning there that I am as uncertain about what's going to happen in this sermon as I have been about any sermon I've ever preached. I don't know if that's encouraging or what, but uh, probably not. Um, since I left you uh, back in December, uh, I've been uh, preaching through the book of Hebrews uh, at First Baptist in Jacksonville. And uh, when Denny asked me to preach, he said, why don't you do something from Hebrews? And so I said, okay, but I didn't want to just repeat something I've done before, and I started looking at some of the last few messages I have preached there at the church, and what I decided to do is try something I've never done before, and I want to take the sermon I preached two weeks ago, the sermon I preached last week, and the sermon I'm going to preach next week, and try to put those together into one sermon here. Now, I'm not going to try to have do everything in this one shot that I did in, and will do in each of those individual ones. But I don't think I can uh, make each of these individual slices fit together uh, or stand independently. I want to try to have them fit together. And so Hebrews 4, 12 to 16 um, is going to be three sermons in one here this morning, I hope. And we'll see what, um, what, what happens. Um, this is what God says. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. It tells us right here that it's your word. You call the scriptures the word of God. And Father, in this text, you don't make any attempt to separate yourself from your word. And so we want to come before your word this morning as we would come before you. 
and realize that this is you speaking to we, your people. And Father, I pray that you'd help us. I pray that you would overcome my weakness and inability. I'm supposed to be a clear communicator. I'm supposed to speak clearly and graciously about your word, but I'm weak in that and fall short. Would you, would you overcome my weakness and give me strength to do what I can't do on my own? I'm, I'm unable. Even, even when I'm at my best, I can't make the word sink into our hearts and change us. I'm unable to do it. And so, Father, would you empower your truth to sink into our hearts? And, Father, we, as a congregation, are weak and unable. We're supposed to listen. We're supposed to learn, but we're distracted. We're thinking about houses or an argument or uh, a life decision or where we're going to go for lunch or whatever it is, and we are distracted. Would you overcome our weaknesses as hearers? And even, Father, when we're at our best and we're taking notes and we're tracking, we can't make the word change us. And so, Father, we're asking that you, by the power of your spirit, would press your truth into our hearts that we would be changed. Father, make us different people. Make us better lovers of Jesus Christ, more faithful servants of yours. And do it because we were together here this morning before you and your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a text about help. The whole thing, all those few verses that we read there together are all about help. And what I want to do is look at what this text says about our need for help and how we are to get help, how that whole thing works. It, it begins, the text does, by telling us about our need for help by talking to us about the Word of God. And the text describes a number of realities about the Bible, about the Word of God, the Bible, the Word of God, is called living. The Word of God is living. It's a bit of a strange thing to say about a text. It's an odd thing to say about a book. But the Bible says that the Bible is living. And the reason the Bible's living is because God spoke it. God is the source of all life. And he has so much life in himself that when he speaks, his life is in his words, and you can't take the life out of the words. When God speaks, his words have life in them, and when his word hits us, we have life in us. God's Power is so incredible in his word that he uses the life in the word to bring other things to life. So when God speaks the world into being with a word, we're told, for example, in Genesis 2-7 that uh, the man became a living creature because of God's life-giving power in his word. When God's word hits your dead heart, you come to life. This is what we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 23 that our dead hearts come to life because of the living word spoken to us. 
So God's word is living because it has life in it and it creates life in us. We're also told that God's word is active. It's living and active. The activity here doesn't have to do with aimless movement that doesn't go anywhere. It refers to activity that moves successfully towards a goal. When we say that God's word is active, we, we really mean that it's effective. It does what it's supposed to do. This weekend on Friday and Saturday, I was uh, uh, in Pittsburgh speaking at an Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals conference, and one of the other speakers was on sexuality, and one of the other speakers was Rosaria Butterfield. And many of you know uh, Rosaria Butterfield's story. You've read her book. You've heard her testimony. You've, you've gotten to know her in one way or another. And as I listened to her testimony again uh, this weekend as she shared it at the conference, I was struck in a way that I had not been before when I read her book and as I've come to know her over the years at how powerful as a part of her testimony is the Bible. She began to study the Bible. It was an object of academic study. She was trying to, she wanted to write a critical book on the religious right, actually, moral majority and that kind of thing. And she started reading the Bible just to be a good student of her discipline. And she kept reading the Bible. She would say she would gorge herself on the Bible over and over and over again. And before she knew what hit her, she believed the Bible. The effective word got in her heart. She meant to tame the Bible. Uh, And Rosaria Butterfield would say that the Bible, God's word, actually tamed her. It changed her. The word of God is effective. The word of God is sharp, we're told. The word of God is living and active, verse 12, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible, long story short, uh, pierces us. When we come before the word, it is sharper than any sword that exists on the planet. And and it pierces who we are at a level of depth. I, I think what ultimately is going on here is that this is talking about the judgment function of the word of God. When you appear before God... Look what it says in verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's been talking about the Bible. It's been talking about the word of God. But in verse 13, it says you are in God's sight. You are exposed before his eye. When the Bible is open on your lap and you're reading it, you are exposed to God himself. We talk about the Bible as though in the Bible God reveals himself to us, and that's true. But Hebrews 4 teaches us that in the Bible God reveals ourselves to us. We are exposed before God. We find out who we are. It takes guts to read the Bible. It takes guts to read the Bible because when you read the Bible, it's going to show you things about yourself that are uncomfortable. 
It's going to show you things about yourself that make you defensive. You are aware of the problems that you've got. But the Bible, when you read it, it turns those problems more often than not into sins for which you're guilty. So this, again, is the judging function. It provokes our need for help. We need help. We come to the Bible and we are revealed as sinners. So we got a room full of them here. All right, so you, you struggle with gossip. And you come to God's word and God's word says you're not allowed to do that. And when you gossip, it's not just a struggle. You're guilty. There's um, people in here who looked at pornography this week. And you say, well, I struggle with pornography. And you come before the word and God's word judges you. And it says you are guilty. The people in here who went too far with their boyfriend or girlfriend. There's people in here who are nurturing inappropriate relationships at work. There are people here who are not giving freely of what God has given you back to invest it into the local church and the kingdom of Christ. And you say, well, I don't give the way I should. But you read the Bible and God's word judges you. And it says that is wrong. You're not allowed to be stingy. And you're not allowed to give and be unhappy about it. God's word judges you. And we need help. The language is really gripping here. In verse 13 it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Naked and exposed. Laid bare before God. The term here is actually a wrestling term. The exposed language here. It, it actually means to be pinned down. The author of Hebrews is saying that when you come before the word of God as a sinner, which is the only status any of us can come before the word of God, the Bible pins us down and we are judged by it. And so when you read Hebrews 4 with care, you learn of your need for help. What are you going to do? What are you guilty people going to do when provoked of your sinfulness? Well, the same word of God that judges us, that pins us down, that provokes our need for help also explains God's provision for the help. And it's actually kind of a surprise. Uh, the help, if you just allow yourself to just go with the argument of the text and just go where it takes you, the help that is offered to you in the midst of the judgment of the word is a little bit of a shocker. God's provision for help when the word judges you, and you see that you are in need, the help is actually a throne. Of all things, the help is a throne. Verse 16 says, 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Guilty, sinful people like you and me come before the word. We get judged. We need help. And the sword of God's judgment leads us to the throne of God's grace. The idea of a throne is a statement of the authority that Jesus has. Jesus has authority to help you when you're guilty and judged by the word because he is sitting on the throne. The idea of a throne makes us make biblical connections. And when I first read this, the first throne I think of in the Bible is the throne we read about in the Old Testament reading today. There's other thrones, but that's one. And in Isaiah chapter 6, we're told that Isaiah was minding his own business. And he's in the temple, and all of a sudden, the ceiling of the temple rips open, the sky rips open, and there is God seated on a throne. God, in a miraculous act of spiritual revelation, causes his throne in heaven to tear through the cosmos come into the temple and reveals his glory to Isaiah. And there's glory everywhere. It says that he's lofty and exalted. I saw God sitting on a throne, high and exalted. It says that the train of his robe filled the temple. In the ancient world and even today in monarchies, the length of a monarch's robe is a demonstration of his or her glory. You've got a really long train of the robe. You've got a really exalted monarch. And the train of God's robe, we're told in Isaiah 6, as we read it earlier, filled the temple. We're told that he's surrounded by this heavenly host that screams, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We're told that they scream so loud that the the thresholds shake. We're told that the room filled with smoke. Smoke or clouds often attend the glory of God in the biblical revelation because he is so glorious and so overwhelming in his splendor that you need something to dim it a little bit. And so smoke, clouds often point to the glory of God. We see this exalted picture of God on his throne. And with that picture in mind, we come to verse 16. And it freaks me out. So here's what verse 16 says. I'll read it again. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We're told the same thing in Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now that's weird. It's weird because this is not the way it's supposed to work. You understand? 
The way it's supposed to work is the way it works with Isaiah. Isaiah is minding his own business, and God, by a unilateral act of authority and power, draws near to the prophet. He's God. He's king. It's his throne. He can take it where he wants it. So he appears before Isaiah and shocks him. That's the way it's supposed to work. God's supposed to do what he wants to do. He's supposed to go where he wants to go. He's supposed to reveal himself to who he wants to reveal himself to and grant access to those whom he chooses. And then, here comes Hebrews 4. And Hebrews 4 invites those who have trusted in Jesus to take their own initiative. To draw near to the throne of grace. This exalted throne, which was blocked from everyone except those precious few to whom God intervened and revealed himself, is now open to you and to me. This Draw near language is the language of prayer. We draw near to this throne by speaking to God. It's another irony. In Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, when Isaiah encounters the glory of God on his throne, he says, I'm lost. I'm unclean. My lips, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. When Isaiah was thrust into the presence of God as he stood there before the throne, the one thing, the one area, I should say, where he felt his guilt was his mouth. And now, because of Jesus, that focus of judgment becomes our means of access to the throne. And when we draw near to God on the throne, we're told we get mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Which I take to mean, long story short, that when the word of God provokes us to see our need, when the word of God judges us and we are pinned down by our crucial need for help, we speak to God and ask for his help and in his mercy and in his grace, he forgives us of our sin and gives us power to do what we could never do on our own, which is obey. Help in Hebrews 4 comes at the throne through a transaction of our prayers offered to Christ and his mercy and grace dispensed to us. Which means if you are struggling with sin here today, and everybody is in some way or another, if you're a Christian, then 
you have to do this thing that's really hard to do when you're struggling with sin. People say this all the time. I feel too guilty. I can't talk to the Lord about it. Hebrews 4 reverses your logic. If you need help, you have to talk to God about it. It's the only place to go for help. God invites you to his throne for help. Now that's all something of an introduction. Because what what gripped me when I started paying attention to this set of verses was how could this be? How in the world could this be? How could it be that God, who is in heaven, lets you and me approach his throne of grace and doesn't just let us but commands us to approach the throne and commands us to do it with confidence? How can that be? Five minutes before I became a Christian, it was this idea that dumbfounded me. I was at a youth retreat on prayer, and I couldn't get past first base, um, which was, how can God hear everybody praying? Like, that must be a really powerful God that could do all that. I, I can only hear one person at a time. I feel like less than that now. But God can hear everybody who comes before him in prayer. That is an amazing amount of power. And that's, that idea of how that could be ever possible, that feat was what was in my head when a dear friend came and shared the gospel with me and I believed it for a, num- for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons in that moment on that afternoon Was it any God that can hear all of us coming to him? It must be amazing. Still didn't answer the question, how is it, though, that God could do this? This is just, I mean, if you just think about how many of us are there in this room? If you all start talking to me and saying, I need this, I need that, I won't even hear anybody. But if we all started praying to God right now, he would hear all of us. That's amazing. And when you put our sin in there that separates us from God, how could this happen? And I think that Hebrews 4, 12 to 16, tells us how this help is accessible to us on the throne. And I want to mention four things in Hebrews 4, 12 to 16, that make this approach, this hearing, and this response possible. And then we'll be done. Here's the first thing. In order for us to get this help that we need when we're guilty and we need grace and mercy from the throne, we need an astounding amount of power. When you need help, you need someone with power to help you. You don't go to someone weaker than you to help you. If you need money, you go to somebody with more money. If you need to move, you go to people with muscles, if you, uh, or at least a lot of people anyway. Um, if you're struggling in school, you go to somebody who's smarter than you. If you're struggling with purity, you go to somebody, hopefully, who's more pure than you are. 
We go to people who are stronger than we are. And Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus Christ is way stronger than we are. In verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. This is using physical and spatial language to talk about where Jesus is. Jesus is physically in time and space sitting on a throne. He has a physical body and he is somewhere as opposed to nowhere or everywhere. He is seated physically on a throne and we're told here that he passed through the heavens to get there. Now, think about that. We, we read in Ephesians 1 during the New Testament reading about the ascension and installation as king of Jesus. We read that because of God's power, his feet were lifted off the ground and he ascended into heaven. We're told that he passed through the heavens and Ephesians 1 tells us that he was seated on the throne with every single enemy placed under his feet. Think about how much power it takes to get that man off the ground, through the air, through the heavens, and onto a throne. I mean, good night. How many years of human history, how many hundreds of years of human history did it take us, and how many billions of dollars did it take us to come up with the idea of getting just enough rocket fuel to get us a few hundred miles out into orbit on the earth? And God transitions Jesus to the heavens instantly by a demonstration of power. It's, it's an amazing amount of power. And we are encouraged that God can demonstrate the power in hearing our prayers and in answering our prayers and in bringing the throne to us because of what he has done historically in getting Jesus to the throne. If God has enough power to get Jesus to the throne, then he has enough power to bring the throne to us. If, if we're provoked by our need for help and we know we need to go to get that help from the throne, then it's not just going to take an astounding amount of power. It's going to take an astounding amount of sympathy as well. Verse 15 says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. When you need help... You don't need help just from someone who has power. In fact, power can intimidate you. Power can drive you away from help. Power can make you say, I'm never going to go talk to that person. When you need help, you want someone who has been there. You want somebody who understands. This is why we say things like, I can't talk to him. He'd never understand that. If I tell her, she's never going to get it. Power is required to draw us to the throne, but sympathy is also required 
to draw us to the throne. And this, this desire to have somebody who gets it, this desire to have somebody who understands is not a moral glitch on our part. It's not a demonstration of a character flaw. If we, were, if we just had enough confidence on our own, we'd go to the powerful people. This sympathy is not a moral glitch. It's necessary for the confident approach to the throne that we need to get help. It's so necessary that God uses it, this need for sympathy, as the foundation for Jesus' effective ministry as a high priest. We're told we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been in every respect tempted as we are. And it says in verse 16, so let us then with confidence draw near. God makes as one of the key foundations for Jesus' effectiveness as your high priest, his sympathy for you. He knows what it's like to struggle. He knows what it's like to be tempted. You can draw near to him and trust in his power with confidence because he has sympathy for you. He gets it. There's nothing that you can go to Jesus for help with that he doesn't understand. He's been there. And so we don't just need an astounding amount of power. We need an astounding amount of sympathy. We also, if we're going to get help from the throne after we've been judged by the sword of the word, then we need an astounding amount of righteousness. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is like us. He sympathizes with our weakness. But he doesn't understand what it's like to sin. He doesn't know what it's like to sin in thought, word, action, or desire. He, he, he never had an experience of that. And, and what I want you to know is that does not undo the point that I just made. It doesn't undo his sympathy for you. In fact, it maximizes his sympathy for you. I was uh, reading just yesterday an article about uh, one of the Navy SEALs training camps in California. And look at everybody perk up when I said Navy SEALs. Everybody's like, what? Navy SEALs? <laughs> that was amazing. It was like in unison. Everybody, <laughs> all that stuff about the throne. Navy SEALs, what? What's it going to say about the Navy SEALs? Uh, <laughs> so I was reading an article about the Navy SEALs and uh, about their training camps. And there's this one training camp in California, and they will admit about 300 candidates, or 200 candidates, excuse me. They admit 200 candidates, and if 30 graduate, that is a tremendously high ratio. So if we get 30 out of 200 after the weeks of training, that's a great big deal. Here's the question. Of all the 200 that start, how many felt the full weight 
of the suffering and the training. Well, it's the 30 who graduate, right? If you make it to 30. Everybody else who bails, whenever, and then you can bail whenever you want. If you went out, they let you out. Everybody knows what it's like to go through the pain and the agony of the training, but it's those 30 that feel the full weight of it. See, you and I, when we sin, we bail out before we felt the full weight of the temptation. Jesus knows more about temptation than you and I do because he lived through the whole thing. He experienced every drop of temptation. And so we want him to be like us in our temptations. We don't want him to be like us in our sins. This is important because the power that Jesus needs to get on the throne is one thing. But even if we could somehow find enough rocket fuel and enough time to get to wherever heaven is, wherever that throne is, God would not let us in. And God would never let us, even if we had the power to get there, God would never let us sit on Jesus' throne because we're not spiritually qualified to do it. It takes more than power to hear and answer prayers. It takes righteousness to hear and answer prayers. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The connection between 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Hebrews 4.15 and 16 is we can draw near to God in our sin because Jesus drew near to God in his righteousness having paid for our sin. The last thing, if we want help, is it takes an astounding amount of intimacy. I was blown away when I saw this a couple weeks ago. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize. The author of Hebrews uses the language of ownership about our relationship to Jesus. We can approach this powerful, sympathetic, righteous Christ because he is ours. How can you fit this in your head? I was, um, I was thinking about this. And you know, one of, the, one of the favorite things about my life is that over the years, we have so many people that we have been in relationship with. So many people that we've helped through hard times, so many people who've helped us through hard times. When uh, I threw Lauren a, a surprise party for her 30th birthday back several years ago, and there was about 70 people in our backyard. And before she got there, I was looking at all these people in our backyard, and almost every single one of them uh, was a person or a couple that we got to know from counseling. And they became our friends. 
I mean, you share life with one another, you talk about these close personal realities and you become friends with these people. And these are our people. And they call us on the phone and they, um, they come to our house and we go to their house and we ask each other for help and they ask me and Lauren for help. But every night, my favorite time of day, actually, is when Lauren and I go up into our bedroom and I shut the door. And I put my phone on Do Not Disturb and we turn out the lights and it's just us. And at that point, there is only one person, out of all the people I know, out of all the people I love, out of all the people I've said, if you need anything, you call me. There's only one person out of all those people at that moment that can put their hand on me and say, Heath, can you help? I need your help. I don't feel good or I'm hearing a noise. Can you help? There's one person who can get to me at that point. And her name is Lauren. And the reason she can get to me is because I'm hers. Because 13 years ago, before a minister, before God, and a bunch of other witnesses, we took a vow to have and to hold one another. And she has access to me, and I have access to her because we belong to one another. And the thing that I just want you to see is that you belong to Jesus. And Jesus belongs to you. The only way you could ever approach his throne is if he is yours. The God of the universe who made you and sustains you says you have me when you come to me by faith. Think of how we sing about this. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine, mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious redeemer, my savior art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. We sing about this glorious reality of ownership because it's true and because we need it. The God who judges you, judges you by his word, calls you to approach his throne and get help for the judgment. And all of that works. It all is able to happen because he's powerful, because he's sympathetic, because he's righteous, and because he's yours. And you know, you know how you know if this help is yours right now? You know if this help is yours if you want to pray. Do you want to go there together? Are you ready for me to shut up, not so you can go to potluck, but so we could close our eyes and appear before the throne? If you don't want that, it's because you don't believe it. You've been listening to this and eh, whatever, power through the heavens, what's that? That's kind of weird. But if you're hearing this and you want to experience an encounter with that kind of power, that kind of sympathy, that kind of righteousness, that kind of intimacy, then you can have it right now. And so let's appear before the throne. Father in heaven, as sinful people, we deserve judgment 
we don't deserve your power directed on our behalf. We don't deserve sympathy. Father, we deserve to have your righteousness scold us and condemn us. But instead, Father, through faith, you say, I am yours. And so, Father, would you help us to avoid just the pattern of repetition and realize that we are before your throne at your invitation because Jesus Christ is our high priest who made payment for our sin. Father, we come before you as guilty, unworthy people. But we say what we would never have the nerve to say if you didn't give us the language. We say that you you are ours and we're asking for your help. Help us to confess our sin to you. And Father, help us to receive your mercy and grace. We pray in the name of our Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.